My dear friends, welcome back to Searching for Political Identity. This is Brian Escal, your host. Might as well give you the date, a little context. It is Saturday, November 13th, and it's just about to be 1230 where I'm at. So welcome to all of you, and thanks for being here. Today, I have a list of five items that I'm going to talk about. I'll just read them to you in order real quick so you know what's coming. First, I'm going to talk about this fan mail I got from a 12-year-old. Then I'm going to talk quickly about the movie Fight Club, which I rewatched the other day. Then I'm going to talk about the American flag. Then four is going to be Steve Bannon, of course. And five... Five is the most, I left the best for last, the most difficult for last, for sure. So hopefully by then I'm warmed up because number five is I'm going to explain critical race theory. Critical race theory, as I'm being taught it right now at University of San Diego Law School by an absolutely incredible professor named Professor Roy L. Brooks. So you can check him out. But everything I'm about to tell you about critical race theory towards the, towards the end of this episode is straight out of his mouth. And he's brilliant. I'll never forget this class. There's so much to it. So I've got this timer running and it's going to be difficult for me to run through all this, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it pretty quickly because who has the time for bullshitting? Excuse my language. So with that said, here I go. Listen to this. If this doesn't melt your heart, I don't know what will. A couple days ago, I get this message, this direct message on Twitter And it says this, hi, Brian, I just listened to your podcast and I think it's great. And so I read the first sentence and I go, okay, cool. This is, that's nice. Let's see where this goes. I like the perspective you have being a young person. I'm 12 years old and I host a news and current events podcast with guests from all over the world, like most recently journalists reporting from Kabul, Afghanistan. Look forward to listening to more. Ezra Graham. I was just like, what? This 12-year-old kid composed a gorgeous note. So thoughtful. And look, I know 12-year-olds are smart because I was smart at 12. So in that sense, I guess I shouldn't you know, overdo this, but my goodness, I was impressed by this young kid. And what a sweet thing to say. And good, I mean, this guy, so it's called News Nerds. If you want to follow him at Twitter, it's at News Nerds Pod. At News Nerds Pod. Great. What? It's just brilliant. So that made my day, made my week. 
I'm going to save that note. So, so thank you, Ezra. Very kind of you, buddy. All right. So that's item number one. Yeah, I rewatched Fight Club the other day. And it, it's interesting. What, what do I take away from it? Well, in terms of manhood, masculinity, to be alive, to feel alive. I think the basic idea from the movie is, you know, you can't hide in your apartment. You can't, you can't not play the game. You got to jump into the game of life and play it. And you might get hit once in a while, but you get up and you punch back, right? In the appropriate way, in the appropriate way, metaphorical. You never, you never use violence. You never fight unless you're defending yourself. But watching Fight Club does remind you that you got to take chances and you got to shake things up. But it's a, it's a dark movie. It's a, it's a good movie. Um, but it's, it's got some intense themes. And I don't know what to make of it other than to say, question authority and reclaim your life, reclaim your agency. Make sure that you're the one in control. You know, don't go full Tyler Durden, but make sure, make sure you know who you are and what you believe in and work from there. I don't know. <laughs> Movie makes you, makes you want to go do something big, bold. Hmm. I wish I had more pronounced thoughts on it. I thought I might by this point. But I just jotted it down. I thought it was worth talking about. Today, in the context of how hot our political environment is, it almost feels like it's going to get physical, right? Everyone's talking about how it feels close to civil war now. Ultimately, I'm not worried about that. But I understand. I think we're, I think we're, I don't think we're terribly far from it. I don't think physically it's going to happen these days, too much integration in the country. But the divide is big, and it's, it's big. So I'm thinking about Fight Club, thinking about that mentality that I see a lot in this culture right now. On both sides, between Antifa, Proud Boys, etc., you know? People, people are fighting. People are fighting. That's why I wrote it down. And then I'm talking about the flag. People are fighting over the flag. In fact, what I see is a lot of liberals, progressives, if you will, not necessarily the same. We won't go into that discussion right now, but many on the left are saying, now nah, screw the flag. I'm just, that, the, the right, the alt-right took it over. Now it's a symbol of hate, just like the swastika. And that's where a lot of people are right now. I'm not there. I like the flag still. And my opinion is that it'll be very easy to reclaim the flag 
if you think we even lost it to Trump. America's much bigger than Trump, so I'm not worried about that. But a lot of people are like, nah, you take your flag. Take the flag because I want nothing to do with you, Trump people. That's the attitude. <sighs> Tough times. So the flag, yeah. I don't know. Was it always a symbol of unity in the past? I imagine it was always a symbol of a point of contention, right? There was always a dissident or a progressive or a critical point of view in society, right? I assume. I assume there wasn't, like in the past, perfect, perfect uniform adoration of the flag. But I would, I would think that nowadays we're at a low point in terms of respect and reverence for the flag. And for me, look, I grew up, like I've told you, in a conservative town, though in a liberal house, progressive house, in a relatively conservative suburb in New Jersey, hand on the heart saying the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. And I, I just... I've got that apple pie American feeling when I see the flag. We had these two enormous flags flying in the center of our town growing up forever. So I think of home. I think of home when I see the American flag. So it's, it's unfortunate and it's sad and it hurts, right? As an empathetic person, it hurts to think that people think the flag means Something far different. Far different. All right, so that's a little bit on the flag. Controversy. And like I said, that flag does not belong to Donald Trump. It does not belong to the Republican Party. It does not belong to anybody. It belongs to all of us. It belongs to all Americans. Right? That's easy. Okay, the big news of the day. Steve Bannon. And the note I wrote is, Brian, talk about the left versus the Tucker Carlson. Okay, but check this out. Because you know what's happening with Steve Bannon. I don't need to regurgitate it, right? He was indicted by a federal grand jury. I think he's turning himself in Monday. So you got the facts. What I think is very interesting well, I guess I'll just talk the left versus Tucker Carlson view real quick. The left's view, of course, is this is hideous what he did. Look at the words. Look what he said on his podcast. He stoked up January 6th. Look what it resulted in. We need to know more. Um, he must testify. And if he's willing to, to go down and serve time as a, loyal, as a loyalist to Trump, Okay, but from the left's point of view, it's this righteous inquisition into what happened that day and then in the days leading up to it and what Bannon's role, what Trump's role is. So if you're following the news, you know that it doesn't look pretty for what Bannon did. It doesn't look pretty. It doesn't sound good. And so the left is saying, great. Perfect. Merrick Garland, finally. 
enforcing a congressional subpoena. This is good. This is all good. Right? And then you have the Tucker Carlson point of view, which is the Department of Justice is now coming after a man because they don't like his opinion. They don't like his opinion on the last presidential election. He thinks it was fraudulent and stolen. And the powers that be, the, the new regime, they would call it regime. That's the word they use, right? They try to, I hate to go on a digression, but real quick. Shame on anyone on the right who uses the word regime to describe Joe Biden's administration. That's disgusting. Have you no shame? They want to call it illegitimate. And this ties in, but it's not really a tangent. Or Steve Bannon wanted to kill this presidency, Joe Biden's presidency, in the crib. His words, right? He wants to be a killer, right? Steve Bannon is Trump's killer. Trump likes killers. And in politics, yeah, I'd agree. You need killers. So Bannon, by his own words, said we're going to kill Biden's presidential uh, administration in the crib. People are be begging for you, Trump, by the time Biden is halfway done. Yada, yada, yada. And how are we going to do that? We're going to do it by having this serious event on January 6, 2021, where everything, where all hell is going to break loose, right? And that's how we're going to plant the seeds of doubt in everyone's minds. And Joe Biden will be illegitimate for that reason. And then we can call him a regime. Okay, this is very devious. And you want to say it's clever. You want to say it's bold. You want to say it's dirty and in a sense respect because you want to respect it because it's like, hey, man, that's politics. War, you know. You know, all is fair in love and war, and they think they're fighting for their conservative values, and maybe all is fair in love and war. Look, it's so that's the and so Tucker and the conservatives are saying, "Hey, you're telling me this guy has a point of view that you don't agree with, and maybe he's right. I mean, maybe you're all right. Maybe Steve Bannon's whacked out." And Tucker's saying, if, I don't care if Steve Bannon's whacked out of his mind. You can't arrest this guy for having a wacky opinion. That's protected speech. And so we get into what is protected speech. What's okay to say? What isn't okay to say? The big lie. Is it okay to tell a big, big lie? So having laid out the basic left versus right point of view there, I now want to tell you something, tell you about something called the Star Chamber. In England, in the, I want to say, according to what I read on Wikipedia last night, it originated in like the 14th century, but throughout the centuries in England, as the courts of law and equity developed, there was this chamber, this court, it was a court made up of several different people called the Star Chamber. And it was notorious, it was famous. At one point it was viewed as this beautiful, basically appeals court, 
that dealt with high-profile cases, like it would have dealt with Steve Bannon back in the day if we were back in 1450, 1530, 1600. It handled cases that were too hot for regular or where the defendant was so powerful, like a public figure, that a, a regular court just couldn't do it. So the Star Chamber was apparently this beautiful, ornate room with these tall ceilings, and you look up, and it's like this blue, beautiful, rich blue ceiling with gold stars. And I, I wonder what the stars represented. Did they represent truth twinkling amidst the dark blue sky? Do they represent, what are they right here? Stars of truth? Why stars at all? Very interesting, but you can imagine it being a beautiful chamber. And at some point in the history of England, apparently, this star chamber became a tool of the administration to persecute dissidents. And it became, that's when it became notorious. And so in pop culture today, when you hear a reference to a star chamber, it's thought of as this place where people were called to and accused of political crimes, maybe something like calling out some sort of political activity like Steve Bannon did, right? We can imagine Steve Bannon being called to the Star Chamber and said, Conf and so here's the thing about the Star Chamber. This is important. You were compelled to testify. There was no Fifth Amendment. You, could, you, you were compelled to testify. And if you didn't testify, they were going to use that as an inference of your consciousness of guilt. And, that's, and you're going down. And the Star Chamber is what gave birth to our Fifth Amendment. The Founding Fathers said, okay, one of the things we're doing when we're making this new country for damn sure is making sure that we can't have a Star Chamber situation where the government just calls you into its chamber and says, tell us what you know, um, or you're going to jail, or you're going to face punishment. Because that's exactly what happened. So Tucker Carlson is basically saying, this is the modern-day Star Chamber. And Bannon's being, you know, forced, dragged in there, and he's not able to Invoke his Fifth Amendment. Right? Why does Bannon have to talk? This is a serious situation. January 6th. So I get it. Flip back to the other perspective. You're the, you're the January 6th commission. You're Adam Kinzinger. You're Liz Cheney, etc. You want Bannon's testimony. You need Bannon's testimony. Why? To make your case. To let... America know what happened that day, to find out what happened that day, to find out what happened that day. Do you not think we should find out what happened that day? All right, well, it seems super obvious that Steve Bannon had a huge multifaceted role in what happened that day. So we need to talk to Steve Bannon. But guess what? He doesn't want to talk. He wants to invoke his Fifth Amendment. And Tucker Carlson says, here we have a star chamber. And this guy's going to do time now? 
And the left is screaming, this is justice. This is justice at work. They were afraid Merrick Garland wasn't going to do anything. And Tucker Carlson, in his point of view, is saying, what? This guy's allowed to have any opinion. It is not illegal to be wrong in this country. But is that what's going on here? No, I say Steve Bannon was more than just wrong. It seems he was devious, insidious. And we'll, we should let the justice system decide if it was criminal. But legally, from a legal perspective, should he be forced to testify against himself? My instinct is to say, no, he shouldn't. He shouldn't be forced. So there's that. Okay, talked about Star Chambers, the Steve Bannon, both perspectives, the fact that he's Trump's killer. Trump wants killers. Okay. Final item. Item number five, explain critical race theory to the audience. You ready? Okay, here we go. All right, this is going to be a lot of information, and I'm going to go pretty quickly, so you might have to rewind this to catch all this. I'm going to try to explain it clearly, just like I was doing it for my dad on the phone the other day. I said, oh, you know, the way I just explained it to him, I think I should give this big overview to the audience, because it would be really helpful. You want to know what critical race theory is? First of all, why do I know what it is? How do I know what it is? I'm learning it right now from a very competent professor. Just leave it at that. He's an authority on the subject. And I am basically the Ted Cruz in my class. I'm one of 40 people in my class that basically has the reaction you would associate with Ted Cruz to to critical race theory. But I'm coming around. So I just want to give you that context. It's a very contested hot classroom setting. I feel that I'm always respectful. And I hope all my classmates would agree with that. But other students, they get into it. And I mix it up, for sure. So that's why you should trust what I'm talking about, because I'm learning this stuff, reading about it, doing in-class debates on it. Okay, I'm getting it from the horse's mouth. So you want to know what critical race theory is? You want to know what the hell it is? Okay. Critical race theory. The first thing you have to do if you want to understand it is say the following. You have to say, our society, the laws of our society today, right now, are racist. You just have to say that out loud because the first concept in critical race theory is called anti-objectivity. The concept that the law is not objective. Because in law school, you learn all about, hey, what would the objective, what's the objective standard? What, what would a reasonable person do? Well, the law has objective standards, you know, because there's, there's just standards of conduct that are good and appropriate. And the critical race theorist comes along and says, guys, 
I know you think the laws are neutral on their face. We had the civil rights movement in the 60s, and we, we got these statutes. We now have equal protection to all these classes that were these traditionally marginalized groups. So you think the law is objective now. You think the, normal, the regular person in society, the Ted Cruz, the average American, maybe you might say, I don't want to say average American, but you can imagine a lot of Americans, let's say it, especially white people, saying, no, the laws are objective. We, we're not targeting any groups. Yeah, that was part of our past. We have a effed up racial discriminatory past. But the laws today are objective, and the criticalist comes along and says, step one, anti-objectivity. Just because the laws are neutral on their face does not mean that they're not having a racist impact on society. So you ask, what is critical race theory? Step one, anti-objectivity. The laws today have race, racial, racist impact on certain groups to the point where you say they're racist. It doesn't matter if the laws are neutral on their face. Look around. Look at society. Look at what groups are suffering. Look at the statistics. Blacks are getting targeted by police, etc., this and that. All the things that a progressive would say is wrong with society. The criticalist says, this is because our laws and our institutions and our systems have been built upon racist foundations and just tinkering with the wording of the text and creating these civil rights statutes it, while it sounds nice, it just didn't do anything. The criticalist says, we still have this problem where the institutions are racist. Talk about systemic racism. So that's very difficult for me and for a lot of people to, to, to accept. Because if you're a straight white male like me, you've been going <laughs> in society. Everything's cool. I'm not discriminated against. Now, I'm Jewish. I know what it's like to be othered. But, you know, I don't have this problem generally of feeling marginalized. So after listening to so many students share their perspective, you have to say, okay, there's a lot of people who believe this anti-objectivity thing, that we have systemic racism, like Colin Kaepernick, right? He would say, we live in an anti-objective society. Now that we have that out of the way, the criticalist wants to propose some solutions for you. Because, of course, they don't want to have society remain racist, remain anti-objective. So they say, and here's how I can explain it from, from there. Because that really is the main thrust of critical race theory, whether it's critical feminist theory or critical lat theory or critical queer theory, or critical um, whatever. These are all real academic fields. And the bottom line is, whatever outsider group you're talking about, the point is they're saying society is slanted against us. That's it. That's critical race theory. It's just saying, look how society is still today slanted against us. And the core concept is the laws are neutral on their face, but in effect, they are disproportionately 
impacting these groups still. So it's a matter of impact, not facial neutrality. Okay, so the criticalist has told you that the impact of today's laws are still racist, and so we got to do something about it. So now that you have this concept of anti-objectivity in your mind, let me let me kind of take a break from explaining critical race theory because in order to finish the explanation of critical race theory, I've got to give you some more context. Okay, and I'll go and I'll do it quickly. In our country and in the English law system that we inherited. You have to ask yourself, what is the role of a judge? We know we have the executive branch, you know, the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And we think of a judge as a, well, look, it's a very big question. What is the role of a judge? And the point is the traditional view is that a judge should be just the analyzer of law and fact and a decider based on the merits of the case. You could say whatever you want, but the traditional view is that the best judge is one that doesn't inject a sense of personal policy into his decision-making process. And the way I like to talk about what's called the traditional process, because now I'm talking about how judges decide cases. We had originally what's called traditional process, which is an adherence to legal rules. Like, is the perfect judge an algorithm that always makes the correct legal decision? Or would, do you need a judge to have a heartbeat? What I'm trying to get at is the old view, the traditional view is the judge, like a Scalia, would say, okay, I've got legal rules to analyze, and I'm going to do that, and the outcome is going to be determined on my analysis of the rules. It's very logic-based. In fact, it's called the logical method. Okay, traditional process is basically one of the main features of traditional process is called the logical method. It's just that. It's an algorithm. I'm not here to put my emotions or values into this. I'm here to execute the, adjudicate the, the case. And you have this other concept within traditional process called legal formalism, which is similar to logic, logical method. Legal formalism is the idea that you have to adhere to the rules. Hey, the 14th Amendment says this, so this is what it is. You know, I don't have room as a judge to get creative. There are rules of law, and I have to follow them. That's the logic, but also legal formalism in the sense that it's just not my place to get creative as a judge. So that's traditional process. And then, as I'm taught in class, the great Oliver Wendell Holmes comes onto the scene and I think he writes a book called The Common Law, which is like one of the most, apparently one of the most famous legal um, works in history. And he wrote 
a short version of it, a summary article for, I think, Harvard called The Path of the Law, which we, Professor, did not assign to us, but he's explained it to us over and over. And the bottom line is what Oliver, the revolution that Oliver Wendell Holmes introduced was hey, the life of the law is not logic, it's experience. Oliver Wendell Holmes introduced the policy method. First, you had the logical method rules, legal formalism, simple. Oliver Wendell Holmes comes along and says, no. Judges decide cases based on what they believe is good policy, and they should be able to do that. So we now have the policy method where judges bring their values and they, they insert themselves into society in a way that you might argue the founders did not envision or permit. They become policymakers because the legislature, Congress, is supposed to make policy, right? They make the laws, the president signs it. That's how you set policy. That's how you set laws, right? Okay, you have administrative agencies in the modern American state. These regulatory agencies that are brand, is a branch of the executive. They make rules. They make laws. That's not what the framers intended, but at least it's a subset of the executive branch, at least which was a law enforcement agency a, a branch, not a cr- law creation branch. but. Nonetheless, we just say, yeah, it's okay. Congress isn't smart enough or adept enough to really master certain issues. So let's let these executive agencies make rules. Okay, fine. But judges? That's a whole other thing. But Oliver Wendell Holmes comes along and says, it's not the logic, it's the experience in people that dictates how these cases turn. And so that really opened Pandora's box, you might say for judges to, to create policy. So for a long time now, we've had a country where judges do make policy, and the conservatives have railed against it, right? But when you know, they've said, hey, legalizing gay marriage, that's a policy made by the court. Desegregation, school desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, judicially mandated desegregation. That's judge-made policy, so that's great. So that's a good example. But certain conservatives at the time didn't want that, right? They didn't want integration. And there has been many liberal, like I said, gay marriage. What else? Um, But then you have Heller, the gun case, 2008. That's a conservative outcome. You have a conservative court now that's probably going to reverse Roe versus Wade. And so now the coin has flipped. So when you have judges make policy, it's about who's on the court. And you can question the legitimacy of that policy because, frankly, our system is not designed for judges to make laws. But that's what we're talking about. So, remember anti-objectivity? Tying it all in now. In the 80s, I think, and it was Derek Bell at Harvard, I believe. Pretty sure. In fact, yes, it was. 
that started critical race theory. The criticalist came along, Derek Bell came along and said, okay, yeah, the policy method is good. That's good. You're vindicating the experience, people's experience, people's experiences in court. And you're just, and you're not justifying, you're validating their rights in court. Great. That's good. This is very good for social progress. So you're validating people's experience. The criticalist came along though and said, yeah, but whose experience? And that's the key. Whose experience, Mr. Judge, are you validating? Whose rights are you validating? Follow me? First, you had logical method where it was not about validating anybody's or any group's rights. It's about following the process, following the rule of law, and following the outcome wherever it leads. That's what a judge does. Policy method comes along and says, not good enough. And by the way, it's not what the law is. Policy method says, the law is judges, human beings, sitting down in courtrooms and either validating a person's right or not validating a person's right. And they have the power, ability, and authority to do that. Criticalist comes along and says, yeah, but who? Whose experience are you validating? Criticalist comes along in the 80s and says, you need to talk about my people because only straight white men are getting their rights validated in courts of law. Now, do you see what I'm saying? The criticalist says, you need to weave my experience into your judicial opinions. And that's what it is. That's what critical process is. This is what critical race theorists want. So you ask me, Brian, what is critical race theory? I say, well, let's pretend your name is Bill. Hey, Brian, what is critical race? Hey, Brian, this is Bill from, uh, from Minnesota. And I just want to say I really appreciate your show, your breath of fresh air, brother. And I just want to know, what is critical race theory? Oh, Bill, thanks for calling in, man. That is a great question. Critical race theory, Bill, is this idea that even though we live in a race-neutral society, that somehow the system overall is slanted against certain groups like women, black people, Native Americans, and so on. Critical race theory, Bill, is the idea that is this the awareness to the reality that there are certain groups that are suffering? And it's because, critical race theory says, of the overall structure of our laws. And Bill, what critical race theory says is, because of that problem, we have to give our judges the power to make policy. And if you can follow me, Bill, what the criticalist says is the judge should be empowered to make not only any old policy, but policies that are race conscious, meaning affirmative action. We might give the judge a power to say, you know what, people of color, however you want to define it, black people, Native Americans, Asians Americans, 
whatever your group is, and this is where people have an allergic reaction to critical race theory, Bill. They say the left is playing identity politics, and they're thinking of people in groups, and people should just be treated as individuals. And that's how I feel, Bill, by the way. So that's why I'm the, like, the lone Ted Cruz in my class, because I believe people are individuals. But Bill, you ask me what critical race theory is, and, and I'm trying to answer. I'm doing my best. And what I'm saying is critical race theory is this idea that the structure and the laws of our society, even though they're neutral on their face, have a disparate impact on certain marginalized groups, Bill. And because of that, we need to do something about it. And the something about it is giving judges the power to make laws, make policies that are targeted to boost certain groups over others. And that's what equity is. And people say, no, that's not fair. We shouldn't have, first of all, if we're going to have a policy that takes certain groups and gives them benefits over another group, shouldn't that be congressionally mandated? And the criticalists would say, Bill, we need those policies. That's the point of critical race theory. And the other point is, Bill, Congress ain't going to do it. And once you realize that, Bill, if you get converted to that mindset, you realize the only way forward is judicial policy, just like Brown versus Board of Education, just like Oberfell for gay marriage, and so on. So it's a question of where do you think the law should come from? Which branch of government? Should it be in by any means necessary type of thing? But at the end of the day, critical race theory says outsider groups have not yet had their day in court. So I went on, but there it is. I laid it out on the line. All right. With that said, I'm going to recharge. No, I'm kidding. I can go on for hours, but nobody wants to listen. Love you guys. See you next week. Later.